0: This is a conversation with activist Leela Al Shami, who is the co author of one of my favorite books on Syria Burning Country Syrians in Revolution and War. Our discussion today will be on her book and a general broad based dialogue on Syria the reaction of the West to the Syrian crisis, how the Western left broadly has failed Syria, and how we can do better in terms of supporting both Syrian activists and academics in their quest to bring the Assad regime to justice, as well as support refugees and families who have been displaced in the midst of the chaotic fighting and interscene warfare that has engulfed the region. Layla's a brilliant thinker in terms of outlining the statecraft of the Assad regime, how the West and neoliberal capital has reacted to the Syrian crisis, and in raising general questions about what Syria says about the broader world. In an era of a Syria, of a Xinjiang, of a West Papua, of Muslim pogroms in India, of white supremacy throughout the Anglo world, increasingly we're unable to look away from crises as we find them right outside our door. I believe these crises are interconnected and only when we can build solidarity internationally can we begin to address the crises that are appearing in each of our nations individually. For more brilliant thinkers like Leela, you can check out our back catalog. We've also spoken to noted Mina activist, Joy Ayyub on Lebanon. I highly recommend that conversation. Our podcast can be found on Apple, Google, Spotify, and other platforms. We showcase footage, art, and protests from around asia on our youtube and you can go to our main website asiaarttours.com where we host interviews and build programs to connect travelers to the artists academics and activists of asia and globally all right here's our conversation with leila el shami co-author of burning country syrians in revolution and war i hope you enjoy this provocative and insightful conversation
1: I'm a British-Syrian activist who's mainly interested in human rights struggles and also anti-authoritarian movements. And I am co-author with Robin Yassin-Kassab of a book on Syria called um, Burning Country, Syrians in Revolution and War.
0: For Idlib and the issues that are currently happening with uh, the EU and the horrific scenes that we've seen of the tear-gassing of uh, Syrian refugees who are trying to enter the EU. Have you or other activists um, had any thoughts about this recent development? And are there any structures that, um, through your own work, through the activism of others, for people who want to help, how can we um, apply some pressure to the EU uh, in any way we can to um, bring this humanitarian crisis uh, to light and to pressure the EU to do the right thing, so to speak?
1: Well, the situation's um, absolutely chaos now on the Turkish-Greek border. I mean, Turkey's opened that border um, very cynically to kind of get EU support uh, for some of the issues that it's concerned in its ongoing offensive in Idlib. Um, the dominance of refugees inside Turkey itself, but pushed them into a situation where those refugees are now in danger because Greece um, is not letting them through. It's been arresting people and um, it's shot people. At least one person has lost its life uh, there. But the situation is very complicated because Turkey has been the main refuge um, for Syrian refugees. It is hosting uh, more refugees than any other country, which is putting a great burden um, on Turkey itself. The EU, um, by comparison, has hosted very few Syrian refugees and has very cynically outsourced its refugee um, the the refugees to Turkey through the deal that it had with Turkey to to keep them there. So, um, But the situation is very concerning because the EU's response now has not been to ensure the safety and right to asylum of those who are trying to cross, but to kind of stand in solidarity with Greece as a shield um, uh, to protect Europe's borders um, from the refugee crisis, as it Seems to uh, phrase it. And, um, you know, also we've seen that over the past months and indeed years, Syrians have been subject to absolute slaughter um, inside Syria, absolute devastation in Idlib right now, where nearly a million people have fled their homes since December alone. Um, and now the EU is talking or EU figures are talking about safe zones and stopping the violence and this isn't a response to Syrian suffering, it's a response to the fact that the EU does not want more Syrians um, entering uh, the EU. So I think it's very concerning that this has been portrayed as a security response um, rather than a humanitarian response. In terms of groups or organizations on the ground, I'm really not sure um, who's on the ground right now. I I know that journalists and NGOs working in Greece have come under attack by far-right groups, and that's incredibly concerning, but I think the pressure on the EU should be to ensure um, that people on the border are safe and that they're allowed uh, to claim asylum.
0: From your own experience as an activist uh, within Europe, within the UK, have there been, despite all the the bad actors, the bad faith actors, who I think you and Joya, you have been talking on the Final Straw podcast, did a very good job refuting a lot of the uh, propaganda and scaremongering that's happening from groups uh, like the Gray Zone or Sputnik or individuals tied to countries like Russia who have a very vested interest in the outcome of Syria. But for everyday people... I know there's large um, groups of Syrians in places like Germany. Are we seeing, um, with Syrian uh, refugees or Syrian migrants to these countries, um, people gradually becoming more interested, more supportive, and more vocal about um, supporting and protecting Syrians um, outside of the states, which I think broadly have been quite um, cowardly, on the level of people on the level of activists have you been encouraged by more individuals speaking up and trying to join syrians in solidarity
1: to some extent yes and um i'm always meeting with and talking to activists who have been very passionately involved in what's been happening in syria and standing in solidarity um, with syrians that are resisting uh, their regime and facing the onslaught of russia and iran in addition to that Um, I mean, for an example, we can talk about Greece because we just talked about the Greek state's response to the refugee crisis. I've spent quite a lot of time in Greece and met many um, Greek activists, anarchists, feminists um, from from different strands um, who have been doing amazing work with Syrian refugees inside Greece. And um, some of that has been taking over squats and providing uh, a safe place for refugees for, from different nationalities, not only Syrians, uh, to be and to organize. But also, this engagement with refugees has led them to wanting to understand much better about what is happening in the countries where they're coming from. So in terms of Syria, a lot of these groups have also been hosting Syrians, um, invited people like myself over to talk about what's been going on in Syria. And I think this is very important because that engagement uh, with refugees leads to much greater nuanced understanding and a recognition uh, in many cases that solidarity doesn't just start at Europe's borders, it's not just a humanitarian issue affecting Europe, that you have to address uh, what are the root causes which are causing people to flee in the first place. Um, So when there has been real engagement with people on the ground, I think there has been um, a much greater understanding and much greater initiatives of solidarity. The problem comes Uh, Mainly, I think, from people who don't have much experience in social organizing or reaching out to and speaking to Syrians themselves, but instead try to promote their own voices and use Syria as a springboard for that, whether that's on Twitter or some of the blogs that you mentioned or whatever. And here you get a great disconnect between the reality of what's going on on the ground and these various conspiracy theories falling into state-centric narratives and these very simplistic binaries of the choices that are facing Syria, either the Assad regime or Al-Qaeda. So it becomes hugely problematic in that regard.
0: And as someone who's spent a lot of time uh, in the MENA region and also countries like the UK or the EU I I really do not understand that in an era of Twitter, in an era of websites, where you can email Joey Ayoub out of the blue, who's a very outspoken activist, you can email email Lila Alshami, you can read her book. Do you have a sense of why, very broadly speaking, for the loudest voices, who also tend to redirect I think a lot of activist energy towards electoralism rather than community building, who try to direct attention into these sort of powerful totems like a Bernie Sanders or a Jeremy Corbyn. Have you talked to younger activists and gotten a sense as to why so many of them will read a story from some of these outlets as opposed to just getting on Twitter and and trying to connect to someone to get the story for themselves? This is a
1: constant source of amazement for me that people are more willing to go to these western sources that don't have any connection with the countries that they're talking about many of them have never been to those countries don't speak the language um, etc and see these as a legitimate um source from which to take their information whereas like you said there are so many um syrian activists or activists from other countries um who are working especially in english if you're in the anglophone world there really isn't any excuse because there's so many syrian activists on Twitter and um, on Facebook that are giving daily updates and analysis and are willing to reach out and speak to people um, who want that. And there's also a lot of good media sources now um, in the English language coming out in Syria. So language barriers, um, if you're working in in the English language, have really been broken down. I, I think it would be more difficult for, for people who only spoke other languages. Um, but yeah, this is a question, isn't it, about the right right to narrate and about um, whether uh, native sources are seen as legitimate or objective or um, all these kind of facts. And, and there's definitely a preference uh, for, for Western experts or people who portray themselves as experts de- despite having no relevant expertise in the topics they're talking about.
0: I know your, your writing partner, Robin, was extremely outspoken Uh, About the Corbyn campaign and his um, positions on Syria. For UK listeners, um, could you explain for Syrians why there was some hesitancy about Jeremy Corbyn? And if I can indulge you, for US listeners, what are your impressions of a figure like a Sanders? Do you think his policy, from what you've been able to uncover, um, would be better for Syrians than any of the other candidates, or do you share some of the concerns that uh, I heard about? Corbyn for, for a candidate like Sanders?
1: Well, obviously, I can't talk on behalf of Robin, and I uh, follow electoral politics much less closely. Um, but certainly among Syrians, there was a, a great concern um, about Jeremy Corbyn. Um, many believed that his kind of rhetoric in um, commitment uh, to struggles in other parts of the world didn't actually match up with um, with reality what was go what was going on there and um, he failed many times uh, to condemn the violence that was happening in Syria and um, raised questions over issues or or People within his his party raised a lot of issues of questions about whether chemical attacks had been carried out uh, by the Assad regime, uh, contributing to these kind of very dominant um, conspiracy theories which are circulating on Syria, and really failing to stand in solidarity with revolutionary Syrians, seeing that there's maybe no other solution for Syrians except for state-directed solutions, and that a lot of the problems um, happening in Syria were more to do with Western intervention rather than the Assad regime itself or the much greater imperialist interventions that you have in Syria today, which is that of Russia and Iran. So I think Syrians in general uh, were distrustful uh, of Corbyn. Um, A lot of um, members of his party fell very much into using this kind of very Islamophobic war on terror narrative. Syrians were called, I think, by... Um, Emily Thornberry, if if I'm correct, as being all jihadists and, and these kind of factors. Um, so there is that general uh, distrust. And I think that um, distrust or those issues that I've raised are issues that kind of pervade um, a large segment um, of the Western left. I've not been following what's been happening um, in America so closely at all. Um, from what I've seen, from what I've heard, it seems that Bernie Sanders is a much less problematic figure um, than Corbyn, but I, I couldn't go into any detail on that.
0: Your book is one of the best. You're on Robin's book. And um, sort of capturing some of the structures or the lack of structures in Syria and explaining a lot of the uniqueness of how the state worked where there were sort of parastate actors like Shabihah, and going through the, the challenges of, in the middle of a war, what it's like to try to sort of build solidarity or build a society. Um, so with that uh, narrative um, sort of set, I'm wondering if you could talk us through pre-revolution in Syria. Um, how did the majority of Syrians relate to the state and within the MENA region, How did Syrians see themselves um, in comparison to their neighbours?
1: Broadly speaking, I think pre-revolution in Syria, um, most Syrians' relationship with the state or how most Syrians perceived their state, um, it was a relation of kind of distrust and fear. You know, you'd had this totalitarian police state in, in power for four decades, which had completely suppressed any form of political organization, any form um, of political expression. It was, to use the phrase of Riad Turk, um, a leftist dissident, it was a kingdom of silence. People were terrified to speak out, and any opposition to the state was really ruthlessly crushed. Um, but there was also, uh, prior to the revolution, some discourse of legitimacy, which had more value um, then than it does now. For example, the way in which the Assad regime uh, portrayed itself as a resistance movement. It supported uh, Palestinian liberation movements. It supported Hezbollah in the struggle against Israel. And um, this gave it more legitimacy, um, certainly amongst the Arab street. There was also, um, to some sense, um, to some extent, a sense of a social contract. People had a feeling: okay, well. If we um, keep quiet and we don't criticise the regime, at least we get our basic needs provided for, at least we have basic services and things like that. Um, and of course, since 2011, that's completely broken down. In terms of how Syrians saw themselves in relation to other um, state, neighbouring states, well, there were close ties um, to its neighbours historically. Um, because historically, it was one geographical region, there's ties of language, culture, religion, many families uh, live in Syria and neighbouring states. Um, so in that sense, there, there was a strong tie. And um, of course, Lebanon uh, was a major source of work and revenue and, and a resource base, both for the regime and for people, because many poorer Syrians uh, worked in construction or the service industry um, inside Lebanon uh, for the upper middle class. Uh, Lebanon was a freer country than Syria. They'd often go on shopping trips or go out partying in Beirut. Um, so there were these links. Um, with Iraq to the east of the country, um, That there were very close ties between Iraq. Some of those were like arms smuggling and, and things like that. It was also, for some Syrians, um, a source of jihad as people, uh, as some people from Syria went to fight against the U.S. occupation in Iraq. Um, But I think because the fact that in the region, many of the states are these authoritarian and totalitarian regimes. And despite uh, the the Syrian regime's um, propaganda around Arab nationalism, people were actually quite divided. They couldn't connect to each other on a lot of levels. And what was very interesting was how that broke down uh, post The revolutionary wave in 2010-2011 that swept across the region when people in the region became much more connected to each other than they've ever done before. Um, People, activists, were building solidarity and linkages over social media, over the internet, with activists in other countries learning from each other, sharing experiences, supporting each other. So it's a kind of contradiction, really, when just at the point. Um, where the state-propelled discourse of Arab nationalism started to break down, and um, these ties and connections across the region were being built in a way that they hadn't before.
0: In trying to create a Syrian identity while still very intensely controlling um, any sense of politics or any sense of uh, challenges to uh, the authoritarianism of Assad, I'm imagining education and religion uh, were focal points of the regime in terms of trying to create the imagined community of a Syrian uh, identity. And I'm wondering within Syria, starting young, uh, so starting as children, how were children taught to relate to Assad and the Assad regime? And within a region um, with multiple uh, strong faiths and with uh, multiple countries where religion has historically been very important. How did the state try to control education and religion uh, to make sure that no challenges would emerge to its rule?
1: Well, education was very tightly controlled uh, and very top-down, and it was really um, a site of indoctrination into Syrian citizens. So, the the values of the Bath Party um, were promoted very strongly through the education system. In the mornings, people would go out and uh, sing the national anthem underneath the flag. Uh, Children um, were made to be part of these kind of parastatal um, organisations, which were Bathist, Bath Party, the ruling party organisations. They were very militarised. They would do trainings, uh, do their their chance for the president through those organizations. and um, So it was indoctrination for an early age, and free thinking was really discouraged through the education system. Um, in terms of religion, uh, the, the state tried to create an image of a kind of um, secularized, desectarianized Sunnism as the official Syrian Islam. For example, um, it encouraged alawis, who are the a minority sect from which the president's family belongs, uh, to build mosques and go on hajj and pray Sunni style. And within the education system, there was no discussion of sex or religious differences or minority groups. So there was a kind of public pretense that there was actually no difference uh, between these different groups and different sects and different religions. Um, at the same time, there was a disconnect From the reality, because um, uh, Alois disproportionately benefited um, from the state. For example, uh, they were disproportionately represented in the military and the intelligence services. Um, The state also put Aloe military families in these townships on kind of key strategic entry points um, to cities. And of course, um, when the revolution happened, we understood why, uh, why that was, because the state really instrumentalized sect um, as a counter-revolutionary tool. So that this is a good example of where the public discourse was the polar opposite from the reality. Um, the regime also used to sponsor kind of um, quietish traditional Sunni scholars and religious leaders who wouldn't oppose it and would stay loyal. And also um, it did allow uh, Salafist jihadist preachers to operate in Syria and it also helped them to gather recruits for um, Iraq to fight against the American occupation and the Shia led um, government there. Many of those um, people were then imprisoned on return to Syria but were actually released from prison in 2011 when the revolution started as a very cynical attempt by the state to kind of sectarianize and Islamize the uprising. So the the, the regime really did did well in kind of controlling all these different tendencies in an attempt to pacify society and keep them quiet, but was at the same time manipulating some of these tensions underneath.
0: So a big um, focus of our organization is we've long been fascinated with uh, subcultures. Uh, To give one example, in Thailand, Uh, Though freedom of expression is uh, increasingly tightly controlled and repression will dial up or dial down based on the political situation, uh, street art has long been uh, sort of a gray area where um, it at times has proved threatening to the state, uh, where in um, traditional channels of art where the state would closely monitor, like a museum, that either received state funding or was connected to a capitalist who to make a lot of money in Thailand you have to know the military and you have to know the state Um, they would monitor that but if I'm painting on the side of a building that's much harder to control and there have been some really interesting um, tensions where the state will sometimes struggle with how to deal with street artists um, I'm wondering in, in a Syria where we do have uh these networks of, of tight control, were there subcultures that um we could see as in tension with the state and then post-revolution when uh there were spaces where the state was either weak or had fully pulled back, were there explorations of uh ideas or um movements that had long been suppressed uh, in terms of queer culture, feminism, or uh, cultural items like books or movies that had been suppressed. Um, So I'm wondering, were were there any things like a street art in Syria um, prior to the revolution that the state was always uh, a bit confused about how to deal with? And then within some of the spaces at, at times that were carved out by the revolution, what were some of the subcultures that people were finally able to explore.
1: Prior to the revolution, the main form of street art in Syria was, of course, the pictures of the president, the statues of the president, um, pictures of members of his family, which really dominated um, any kind of public space. Um, And any expression of dissent was really ruthlessly um, repressed, and the public space was very tightly controlled. Um, So, permitted art um, was that which was uncritical or acted in service of the regime, and it was very distant from most people. It was really served up for the consumption of a cultural elite. I think the exception to that was probably um, TV dramas, uh, these historical and social dramas which were very, very popular in Syria prior to the revolution. um, which went some way in tackling taboo issues and issues of corruption, but they never directly criticised the regime. Um, So there was a real stagnation of the arts due to this restrictive environment and the censorship um, that occurred. So many books uh, were were banned. And writers really only advanced um, through state-controlled institutions, such as the Arab Writers' Union. So unable to publish in Syria many dissident writers and um, published their works outside and one form uh, of art um, which was um, popular and would circulate um, underground was prison memoirs and um, there was for example the shell by Mustafa Khalifa or um, the memoirs of the leftist dissident Yasin al-Haj Saleh who spent many years in prison and um, so these um, these would, would circulate in, in hidden ways, but certainly weren't permitted um, by the state. And then, of course, when the revolution broke out, it was really a cultural transformation from the bottom up and people rec- reclaimed the public space. And of course, one of the catalysts for the revolution or for the revolution spreading was this act of graffiti where a group of young schoolchildren in Dera in the south wrote um, on the walls, having seen the fall of um, Ben Ali in Tunisia and protests against Mubarak in Egypt. They wrote on the walls something like, it's your turn, next doctor. They were arrested and um, they were tortured um, by the police and this precipitated uh, wide uh, protests in Dera, which then spread around the country. Um, so reclaiming public space uh, was really seen as a revolutionary act and we saw an explosion in graffiti throughout the revolution we also saw that the protest movement themselves became this very carnivalesque atmosphere of dance and song and there was an explosion in writing artwork Uh, many online galleries were setting up where people would be commemorating revolutionary figures and acts and um, there were also new art forms that were emerging, such as hip hop. It wasn't massively popular in Syria before the revolution, um, but it became much more uh, popular because of this kind of hard hitting social and political commentary. Um, so there was an explosion in art forms that had been very much repressed um, before the revolution. And I think this cultural uh, transformation and the cultural aspect of the revolution is something that's going to impact Syria's future um, in very positive ways um, for years to come.
0: Thank you. That was a beautiful answer. Something I I wrote down um, that came to memory for me that, for whatever reason, fades in and out of these conversations on Syria, Sheer al-Assad, and uh, I forget his wife's name, Asma, For a while, they were stage managing their presentation to the West. Uh, I believe a famous incident was uh, Anne Winter went and photographed them or supervised the photographing of them. And she was, Asma was known as like the Desert Rose. And there was this very deliberate push by the regime to present uh, Bashir al-Assad as sort of this cosmopolitan everyman of of high class and, and high repute. And I'm wondering, uh, twofold question one, why did the regime go through the bother of doing that in a way we don't really see with um, uh, some of the other authoritarian leaders of the moment? And then two, is it, if, if you were unaware of some of these issues, if you couldn't speak the language, if you were just being on a stage guided tour through Damascus, would they have been able to hide from even a keen reporter or a journalist the levels of repression and the omnipresence of surveillance that you've just discussed? Or was the West complicit because they wanted to believe the story they were being told and, and didn't want to dig any deeper?
1: I think you're right that um, Assad, Bashar al-Assad and his wife really tried to create this air of respectability. Um, they understood the Western psyche, um, and I think part of that was due to the fact that Bashar had worked uh, for some time in the West, Asma herself grew up in the West, grew up in Britain. So they really understood that, um, that aspect of it. And when Bashar came to power, he did want to open up the economy. And um, he, he started using all these bu- buzzwords about modernization, liberalization, uh, development in Syria in order to attract uh, investment um, into Syria. And. Um, which uh, many people, of course, bought into. Um, In terms of people visiting Syria, whether they would be aware of the levels of repression, um, I think to some extent there were even people inside Syria that weren't aware um, of everything that was going on because Syrians didn't talk about anything. They were terrified to speak in public and to challenge the regime or to express their views. Of course, the older generation had the memory of what had happened in the late 70s and 80s uh, with the repression of the movement against Hafiz al-Assad of that time and the brutal uh, suppression of the uprising in Hammer, where much of the old city was destroyed um, by uh, Hafiz's air force to, to quash the uprising there. But maybe the newer generation, there was more a sense of um, if we keep quiet and don't talk about things, at least we can just get on with our lives. Um, So people visiting Syria might not have had the opportunity uh, to understand really some of the dynamics and tensions under the surface. Of course, people were still disappearing into prisons. Um, I think the fact that, as I said, the president's statue and posters were everywhere gave you this kind of sense of totalitarian foreboding. uh, Of what was going on underneath the surface, but people maybe didn't ask questions and they didn't dig into what was going on.
0: And so turning to um, neoliberalization or McKinsey or um, all these sort of evil groups that I don't know what they do and I don't know how they live with themselves. But when we look at things like a McKinsey or a Goldman Sachs, uh, Bashar al Assad, when he was going through these, uh, either these. This Potemkin sort of these gestures of reform, was he collaborating with these sort of international consultancy groups like a McKinsey or a Goldman Sachs? And if so, is that was that style of economic reform of neoliberalization um, was would that have been compatible with the Syrian regime at that time or? Uh, were did economic were economic reforms compatible with authoritarianism, or would economic reforms like a neoliberalization uh, of Syria's economy uh, and global pools of capital moving in? Do you believe that may have led to political reforms as well?
1: When Bashar came to power, he started implementing these neoliberal economic reforms, but not political reforms and started encouraging um, investment into Syria, which was coming in um, from uh, the Gulf countries, from investors in the Gulf countries, from investors in Europe. Um, There was the opening of private banks um, and investment capital going in. For example, uh, Prince Walid from Saudi Arabia bought and operated um, the Four Seasons Hotel in Damascus. That there was a lot of money going in and these people, they weren't concerned necessarily about political reforms. Um, I think the, that they would have probably been concerned about issues of corruption, which would have been hindering a favourable investment climate. Um, but, but issues of, of political reforms were not being raised um, at that time. Um, Syria was also reaching out a lot to expatriates in the 2000s. Uh, buthena Shaban, who was Um, head of the Ministry of Expatriates at that time, was uh, holding conferences and encouraging people to come and reinvest in Syria. Um, During the 2000s, Syria was also negotiating an association agreement with Europe uh, to improve cooperation and trade with the EU. And that did have conditionalities on it for democratic reforms and human rights standards. Um, and things like that. But that was never signed. And of course, that was suspended when the revolution broke out in 2011.
0: I think one of the worst tendencies of the Western left is to look at things only through the lens of class. And um, uh, that's something I think that needs to be pushed back on. But it is class and um, neoliberalization or the privatization of uh, former elements of the state that would provide for citizens, I do think is an important critique. When we look at these neoliberal reforms and these pools of capital moving into Syria uh, under the administration of uh, Bashar al-Assad, would we um, say that this gave impetus or was a catalyst to um, the early animosity of uh, Syrian revolutionaries and protesters, to the state, um, was, was there a very clear link between some of these neoliberal reforms, the shrinking of the state and, uh, people coming into the street demanding, uh, a, a better, more, um, a, a better relationship to the state, uh, prior to this neoliberalization?
1: Definitely, yes. I mean, um, these neoliberal economic reforms really benefited the crony capitalist um, class. In Syria, a very ruthless form of crony capitalism is practiced where the wealth is very much concentrated in the hands of people related to the family of the president or regime loyalists. For example, Rami Makhlouf, who's the maternal cousin of the president, Uh, Prior to the revolution, was estimated to control some 60% of the Syrian economy uh, through his business interests, whether that was real estate, um, mobile phone companies, um, etc. So wealth was very much concentrated in a few hands. Meanwhile, um, the subsidies that people, that normal people, were reliant on. such as subsidies for food and for fuel, were being dismantled. So people started to get much poorer uh, during that period, during the first uh, decade of Bashar al-Assad being in power. And were are finding it increasingly difficult to survive. It wasn't unusual to meet somebody, uh, a taxi driver, and when you're talking to them, uh, find out that they were also a university lecturer or a teacher but had to now work two jobs just to kind of keep food on the table. Um, so this resentment towards the crony capitalist class and the increasing uh, poverty and difficulties that ordinary Syrians were facing uh, was a catalyst for the revolution, and you see that very clearly in 2011 when the revolution breaks out, and um, that it breaks out first and continues to rage the fiercest in kind of disadvantaged rural areas and these working class suburbs that had been greatly expanding around major cities.
0: So something I've struggled with uh, in talking to uh, Lebanese activists, uh, Joy Ayoub and um, Lina Monsur, uh, come to mind is they will have uh, sort of militias in Lebanon, um, shabiha and Hezbollah and sort of these uh, men who are these hired, uh, these hired hands of violence, uh, for, for certain political camps. And in reading about Syria, it almost reaches this sort of mystical quality in explaining uh, the violence of groups like Shibiha. Um I, I may be misremembering, but I re- uh, recall that even the word itself, the, the uh, origin of the word is mysterious. It's been linked to things like ghosts. And um, the violence is always spoken about in, in this almost mystical way because it's almost so uh inhuman Uh, a lot of the violence that was committed by uh these groups and i'm wondering just at a at a at a level of if you can you explain to me it what is it just simply they wanted to keep what they had that they were offered rewards when we when we or these sort of sectarian links for a complete outsider who's a pacifist for the most part who's bewildered by the cruelty of groups like the Shabiha, were they just looking to protect or grow their interests in these um, as the state shrunk and became more and more privatized? Or were, are there larger links to sectarianism, to faith, to patriarchy that explain the violence of, of groups like the Shabiha uh, towards peaceful protesters?
1: Yeah, well, as I've said before, the way in which the state kind of silenced any public discussion of sect or, or sectarian differences, and, you know, at the same time, there were a lot of sectarian tensions under the surface. So if you go back um, to the 80s, for example, and there were obvious tensions and provocations, both by the state and by groups such as the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so, for example, Rifat al-Assad, who's um, Bashar's uncle, uh, he sent on the during the 80s uh, people on buses who would rip the hijab, the, the veil, off um, veiled women. Um, there was also... Uh, a number of sectarian atrocities carried out by a more extreme wing of the Muslim Brotherhood against uh, Alawi communities um, in their opposition to the regime. So there were these tensions um, that that were kind of uh, silenced um, by the state level. Oh, the other thing is is, is the regime would often silence uh, people who were able to defuse community tensions between different groups. So. Um, religious leaders and community leaders would often, that that were reaching out to other groups, would often be replaced um, by regime loyalists. Um, I think when the revolution broke out, um, Bashar really tried to manipulate um, sectarian ethnic tensions uh, in the service of keeping the regime in power. Um, And one of the facts was its very cynical attempt to um, sectarianized the uprising and Islamized the uprising, such as, as I mentioned before, releasing these Salafist jihadist extremists from prison, some of who went on um, to lead the most extreme uh, Islamist brigades to emerge over the course of the war. For example, Zahran Alush from Jaish islam was released as part of that prisoner release, and um, key figures such as Abood from Ahl al-Sham and from uh, Nusra, which was the Al-Qaeda affiliate, were released uh, from prison in this attempt to manipulate sectarian tensions and to portray uh, not only to the West, uh, he wanted to reach out to the West and say, look, the choice is between me or these Islamist extremists. But he was also speaking to a domestic constituency, saying, look, if you get rid of me, If the regime falls, we might have these extremist Islamists in power who will not respond um, in a favorable way to minority groups. And so that did attract some measure of minority support uh, from some Christian communities, etc. But in terms of the Alawi community specifically, um, a, a lot of them felt or were made to feel that their interests were intimately bound up with the survival of the regime. And the Alawi areas uh, traditionally in Syria have been quite disenfranchised, uh, quite poor. Uh, People advanced uh, through the regime being in power. And it was very easy for the regime to say, uh, if, uh, if the regime falls, there's going to be retribution enacted on you. Um, they of course manufactured that retribution or that fear of retribution to a large extent through things like the shabiha, where the regime would rely on solely Alawite militia to apply uh, disproportionate violence to Sunni oppositional communities, which would then create a sectarian backlash. There were underlying uh, tensions, but these, you know, people have lived peacefully uh, and together through many moments of history, um, but then at certain times of political crisis, these tensions are manipulated by those in power for their own interest.
0: Not to get too philosophical and off track, but it feels like that violence on the part of the Shabihá is a trap for them as well, where once it's committed, you've marked yourself as an individual who's committed violence against your local community, and it makes you more loyal to the regime because there's no turning back, there's no way to sort of absolve yourself of that crime. Is, is that a theme within the Syrian conflict generally, where once that violence is committed, it can sort of freeze people in these identities in a way that uh, annihilates uh, reconciliation or uh, peacemaking as an option? I think that's
1: definitely true for the reasons um, we've already spoke about, that people kind of double down uh, within their identities and turn to much stronger forms of their identities, and that there are feelings. Um, of hostility increasing amongst uh, different religious and ethnic groups in Syria since the conflict. But I think we should also remember um, the attempts of people to overcome those sectarian differences and tensions. Certainly um, at the beginning of the revolution and and until now, to a lesser extent, you know, there were many people from minority communities that um, participated in the revolution. And there were also many different attempts to reach out across uh, religious and sectarian divides and to work together. So for example, um, in in our book in Burning Country, uh, we talk a lot about the experience of uh, one activist in Latakia, which is an Alawi majority area where people are traditionally loyal to the regime. There was a local committee um, which was established there to kind of coordinate revolutionary activities that really spent a lot of time investing in trying to reach out um, to people of different communities and dispel any kind of mistrust or fear that they felt.
0: I think for a lot of Westerners, we have an inherent chauvinism that we constantly need to reflect how to overcome, uh, doubly so if we're white or white-presenting, as I am uh, being uh, uh, Lebanese and Armenian, uh, Lebanese-American, Armenian-American. and that chauvinism comes to uh, the forefront when we think of things like democracy. We automatically associate it with what, whatever sort of Western notions uh, we've had of democracy. And in reading uh, your work and Yassine's work, uh, I think I didn't do a good job reflecting on that chauvinism in myself. And I'd like to take the opportunity to ask you, early on when protesters were going to public squares and were uh, peacefully... Um, pursuing uh, greater reforms. Was the model, uh, generally speaking, for many protesters, how uh, a Westerner would associate with democracy, or were they very based in sort of the local environment and the local lived realities um, uh, of the individuals uh, within Syria or within the region?
1: It it depends at what levels you're looking at, because in terms of the kind of um, the formal organized opposition in exile, they were really um, trying to go uh, through the kind of normal state processes of getting state recognition and a democratic transition on the state level. Um, But people on the ground had, um, you know, different ideas about what they wanted to achieve in Syria and different ideas of how they were actually going to put democracy into practice and not necessarily waiting for the regime to fall and for this democratic transition to take place. So, for example, in communities which were liberated from the regime, when the regime left, um, left those communities or was forced out of those communities, it withdrew services. So people had to come together together. Um, very quickly to keep their communities functioning, to start um, thinking about things like how would they keep the water and electricity supply functioning, how would they keep hospitals and education systems functioning. And the vision that they looked for to that was a vision actually developed by um, a Syrian anarchist called Omar Aziz, who um, advocated, um, he believed that protests alone wouldn't uh, bring down the state What was really needed was a transformation in people's forms of social organization and and people's lives to really initiate a social revolution, have a much more thoroughgoing uh, transformation um, of of power relations. And he advocated for the establishment of these local councils, which he envisaged as these kind of democratic grassroots forums where people could come together to discuss the needs in their community and build horizontal linkages amongst communities and on the regional level and the national level. When land began to be liberated, we saw local councils really spreading throughout the country um, in towns and cities across Syria. Um, And many of those councils, they followed different models. Many of them held democratic elections, and these were the first uh, democratic elections that were held in Syria in four decades, but they received um, very little attention from the West.
0: For uh, the world, if, if it does continue to trend in authoritarian ways, um, where the state um, globally becomes more and more hostile to citizens, it views as um, uh, expendable for its goals. Um, we're seeing that in Xinjiang uh, with the building of camps, in India with what many Indian activists have called pogroms, against Muslims to prime for greater nationwide violence in West Papua, uh, to clear people off land that the Indonesian state and capital wants to develop. What could um, activists who are interested in concepts like developing autonomy, com- autonomous communities or armed self-defense, how has your experience as an activist um, with the Syrian revolution informed your thinking about this? And is it something that Um, you envision will need to take more seriously globally um, in the in the near future
1: I mean in some ways it's hard to give advice because what happened in Syria happened because of necessity and inevitability and taking up arms wasn't necessarily the right thing to do but under the circumstances there wasn't any other option Um, Whether a revolution stays peaceful or takes up arms is largely due to the response of the state. And for Syrians, it was a struggle of survival. They were uh, against a state, fighting against a state which was prepared um, to use mass violence and exterminate a civilian population in order um, to hold on to power. And so people had to take up arms to defend themselves um, from that in a way, it robbed the revolution of its purity and it brought all sorts of problems into the revolutionary process. For example, the scramble for arms. Um, when you're reliant on arms, you're reliant in reaching out to foreign powers who are the ones that can provide it, which provides an entry point for much more external influence in the revolutionary process. And um, it also increased authoritarian tendencies in the revolutionary movement as as armed militia groups began to compete uh, for power, for dominance, for control over territory. It also provided an entry point uh, for the Islamization and extremism which developed out of the uprising, um, which which wasn't part of the peaceful or the civilian uh, movement. Um, So it made everything much more complex
0: hmm Yeah, I think that's a very fair answer. Um, and I guess this would lead into the next question. So I've listed numerous atrocities that are happening right now, uh, particularly uh, for um, Armenians uh, with the lineage of genocide, though unfortunately we have a lot of company in that now in our contemporary world. Whenever you say the word camps, it makes me feel disgusted and there are camps um in in numerous spaces we could even look at um refugee camps uh in australia uh, on lesbos as um systems without solutions designed to discourage or brutalize people to the point that they give up and i'm i'm wondering for you what has and and this is a question I, i i have to ask you even though it it disgusts me to have to do so because it makes me furious. But for the indifference of the West, broadly speaking, to Syria um, and to some of these other global conflicts, because I I would like to build solidarity for all these people who are suffering. What does it tell you about ways forward for uh, activism, if we can't count on the state? How, how has the tragedy informed your thinking and, and, and what has it sharpened in terms of where you think we need to go as activists? Um, and that can be a multifaceted response. I, I just, I wanted to ask you about that.
1: There needs to be a decisive break with these so-called anti-imperialists who see things um, solely in binary or status terms and whose ignorance immediately turns into conspiracy theories and racism. Because we've really seen a section of the left, um, which is regurgitating regime, Russia and Iranian state propaganda, and it's using the worst kind of war on terror and Islamophobic rhetoric. And most of them don't even seem to be aware. Whilst that's only a section of the left, we're also seeing another section that hasn't yet challenged that or disowned it. So to go back to your question... Um, I think that what, that's what needs to happen. There needs to be a process of self-reflection and understanding of where things have gone so badly wrong and why the left is largely irrelevant in terms of responding uh, to some of these issues that, that you've raised. Um, so I think we need to really um, start to listen to and learn for others, those who are directly affected by revolutionary struggles, who are directly affected by war, are often the best placed um, to provide context and nuanced understanding of what's happening in their country. And we should really be building uh, these people-to-people links and solidarity, learning from each other, finding ways to go forward together, because at the end of the day, um, unless we're able to build a movement, unless we're able to reach out um, and build connections with other people, we're not able to take on any of these challenges that are facing us today.
0: I wanted to ask uh, just uh, lastly, um, and it's always fine for people to ask for help, because I, I I would like to try to help the world <laughs> however I can, but um, for people who are listening who just say, what can I do, I'm just one man, one woman, um, how, how would you advise people who, who listen to conversations like this, either specific to Syria or, uh, generally? How would you advise people who at times can feel powerless how they, how they can help? And maybe specifically for Syria, what would be, um, counsel you'd offer for people who've heard this, are as mad as I get when I talk about this? What, what are ways that we can help even if we're, um, We're not in the EU, the UN or um, sitting across from um, world leaders.
1: Well, I think we can feel very disempowered because if we look at a situation like Syria, um, I mean, I don't have any hope that we can, uh, you know, end the slaughter there tomorrow or or see a democratic transition take place. We're way beyond that point now. There's so many uh, different state interests. And other interests involved, and um, that in the face uh, of finding a solution to end the suffering, to end the conflict, uh, we don't have that much immediate power to do that. But that doesn't mean that we're powerless, and um, because there are many things we can do which can have a massive impact um, on people's lives in Syria. And part of that is building these human connections, this human-to-human solidarity, reaching out to Syrians, uh, learning more about what's happening. Finding ways to support them in Idlib today, which is going on, uh, going through a massive humanitarian crisis um, because of the relentless assault by the regime and Russia on those communities. You know, there's some amazing Syrian-led organisations on the ground which are trying to respond to that, to respond to the needs of the displaced, provide medical treatment, etc., such as Mulham Volunteering, Violet Organisation, the White Helmets. These groups are in desperate need of support and um, there's Syrians inside and outside that are working on a number of different campaigns such as the Families for Freedom, which is a women's led movement working, calling for the release of all those detained in prison in Syria and we know about the horrors um, of detention in Syria. Um, the other thing that people can really do is challenging the narrative and um, challenging some of these conspiracy theories which are spreading about Syria, challenging people who are not connected to Syria, who are trying to talk on behalf of Syria and putting uh, their own views across. And there's really a lot of work to be done on that, on challenging that and raising Syrian voices to the forefront. And those are things that people on the outside can do and would have a really beneficial effect for Syria and for Syrian activists.